0: Rise and Shine. Africa Africa, Africa amuka na
1: Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on... 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to far west africa i'm lulu gabu in studio with ann musa Tabiso mohoku and tami pulza in our top stories on africa rise and shine at this hour ugandans prepare to vote in presidential elections zimbabwe's first lady grace mugabe's mental state questioned and zimbabwe impounds a jet after body and cash found on board in economics, job cuts to escalate in South African minds and in sports news, Nigeria's first Afghan goal scorer Asuko Ekbe dies. But first, love the news with Anne Moussa.
2: A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. The government of Rwanda has confirmed it will not close its borders or forcibly expel Burundian refugees on its territory. The UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, made the clarification after an early announcement that Rwanda would plan the safe and orderly relocation of refugees to a third country. UNHCR's External Relations Officer Martina Pomeroy has welcomed the news.
3: We got some reassurances uh, in that meeting that, uh, you know, we're not going to see refugees being expelled, uh, we're not going to have the borders closed, but we really urged the government to make these clarifications public, you know, to, to prevent panic in the refugee camps.
2: An unmanned aerial vehicle operated by the U.S. military has crashed in southern Somalia near the country's border with Kenya. Residents and witnesses say the U.S. drone crashed in a militant-held village in the southern ghetto region. Meanwhile, Al-Shabaab Militant Group claimed on the radio station that its militants seized the crashed drone that carried at least six missiles. The U.S. military has denied the report. Three people have been killed and seven others wounded when gunmen opened fire in a bar outside Lesotho's capital, Maseru. All the victims were members of the opposition or Basotho Convention who were returning from a rally on Sunday. Police spokesperson Clifford Mulife says the gunman just walked into the bar and started shooting. Ndako Nagatane reports.
4: Three people died at the scene, seven were wounded and taken to hospital, five remained there and two were discharged. But the village of Hammansebo is reeling with this shocking incident. The gunmen did not cover their faces and a manhunt is now on for them. Police have opened cases of murder and attempted murder.
2: Zimbabwe police say they're still probing the matter of a dead body found in a compartment on a South African-bound cargo plane. The private plane was en route from Germany to South Africa when a technical fault forced it to land in Zimbabwe. Blood was seen dripping from the side of the plane and the body of a man was found. The plane was hired by the South African Reserve Bank to carry newly printed notes from Munich in Germany to South Africa's coastal city, Durban. Zimbabwe is holding the plane and cargo until investigations are complete. South Africa's Ambassador to Zimbabwe, Vusi Vimbela.
5: Our primary objective right now is that the cargo needs to be released because clearly the cargo, the South African Reserve Bank has produced all the documentation to say it's their cargo, is authentic. We even have documentation, documentation out of Munich to say this is the property of the South African Reserve Bank because the body was found outside, not inside where the cargo is. <sighs>
2: And finally, South Africa's parliament has confirmed that both opposition parties, the economic freedom fighters and COPE MPs, will take part in the debate of President Jacob Zuma's State of the Nation address despite disrupting the President's address last week. Members of the two parties were ordered by the presiding officer to leave the chamber after continuously disrupting the address. Political parties will debate the State of the Nation address on Tuesday and Wednesday, and Zuma will respond on Thursday. Spokesperson for Parliament Luzuko Jacobs explains.
6: Uh, Everyone will be participating. Uh, No political party, no member of parliament has been suspended from taking part in the debate that's going to take place tomorrow and on Thursday.
2: And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African time.
1: It's 8.05 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, Rwanda has pledged not to close its borders or forcibly repatriate Burundian refugees. This is according to the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR. The agency sought clarification from government after statements were issued implying the refugees would be relocated to a third country. Over 70,000 refugees from neighbouring Burundi have registered with the agency. More from Martina Pomeroy, an external relations officer, UNHCR.
3: We found out on Friday that it was the Minister of Foreign Affairs who issued this statement, that they're intending to relocate Burundian refugees outside the country. And this was concerning for us because UNHCR is one of the government's key partners as far as refugees go. And we had not been uh, consulted on this. So we immediately met with our counterpart ministry, which is the Ministry for Disaster Management and Refugee Affairs, to try to have some clarification on this. So we got some reassurances in that meeting that we're not going to see refugees being expelled, we're not going to have the borders closed. But we really urged the government to make these clarifications public to prevent panic in the refugee camps. Do you know what are the reasons for this decision? The statement referred to kind of, you know, pressure and the burden of having refugees in the country. You know, we understand very well that uh, it is a very significant burden, particularly when there's already 75,000 Congolese refugees living here. At the same time, international partners really did step up last year in supporting Rwanda. Donors contributed over $35 million for the refugee response here just for the Burundi refugees. So Rwanda got a lot of support from the international community, and I think that has to be taken into account.
7: What is the situation of the Burundian refugees in the country now? So we have just
3: over 70,000 refugees who are actively registered with UNHCR right now from Burundi. And um, of those, about 45,000 live in Mahama um, Camp, which is a large camp that's kind of divided into two halves. So refugees receive the basic assistance in terms of shelter and access to water and so on but we're, we're trying to now transition from the emergency phase, get people out of the tents um, into more durable structures. So we just recently launched our funding appeal to donors. So this, this timing of the statement was not really helpful for us because we're on the one hand asking donors to help support refugees here, and then uh, suddenly, being you know, uh, hearing that refugees might might be outside the country.
7: What's your advice to the Rwandese
8: government now?
3: Well, we hope that they will clarify uh,
7: what what exactly is uh,
3: meant by this statement, because there's no explanation of any kind of timeline for this plan, who these international partners are that they are referring to, which third countries these refugees would go to. So we're already hearing that this is having major impact in the refugee camps, as people are wondering, you know. Where are we supposed to go? By when? You know, it's causing a lot of uncertainty. And we're, we're waiting to hear if this is also potentially having ramifications on people who want to leave Burundi, but maybe feel now that they're unwelcome here.
7: Do you have anything to add on
3: this? I would just add that you know, UNHCR stands ready to continue its support to the government of Rwanda in um, you know, receiving refugees and hosting them here. And uh, so we hope that the government will, you know, clarify the statement to reassure everyone that refugees will continue to have access to asylum in Rwanda as per their international obligations.
1: That was Martina Pomeroy, an external relations officer at the United Nations Refugee Agency, UNHCR, speaking to UN Radio's Priscilla Lacombe. Ugandans vote in the presidential and parliamentary and local elections on the 18th of February in, thir- in the third poll since the restoration of multi-party politics in 2005. President Yoweri Museveni is seeking to extend his 30-year rule and envying against seven opposition candidates for a fifth term and he faces his toughest challenge yet. Candidates include his longtime rival Kiza Besige and former Prime Minister Amama Babazi. Meanwhile, Human Rights Watch says Uganda's human rights situation seriously undermines the prospect of free and fair elections and the ability of Ugandans to exercise fundamental human rights such as free expression, assembly, and association. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Maria Burnett, senior researcher in the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch. Yeah, I think we've
9: had over the last several months sort of three critical concerns related to the campaign period. So the first one has been that there is a real problem of freedom of assembly. It can be very difficult for opposition leaders to communicate in a campaign setting in rallies. We have a history of both opposition leaders and also bystanders to protests or demonstrations being arrested. We have a lot of examples of the state use of force and excessive use of force. And over the years, we've documented killings in the context of demonstrations. And so we've been calling for the police to be restrained in the context of public gatherings and demonstrations to ensure that the use of tear gas is only when there is conduct that warrants the use of tear gas. The police have argued that they can use tear gas when they believe that a rally is somehow unlawful, according to the Public Order Management Act. Another concern has been the intimidation and threats to the media. Obviously, most Ugandans still get their news from the radio and not in English, and so there's much less scrutiny of what goes on in the non-English language radio media than there is in the print media of Kampala. And we've documented a lot of examples of threats to journalists and intimidations of the media across the country. And the, the third issue has been this one of crime preventers and the sort of unregulated use of state force. In this case the police and the government leadership have recruited what they believe to be over a million young people throughout the country. At one point the police chief had argued he would have eleven million. That's obviously not very reasonable given that there are only about fifteen million registered voters in Uganda. But He has said that this is an important aspect of community policing, and our concern has been that we have lots of documentation to indicate that this force is not regulated, that they're not held accountable, and that they're acting as the sort of eyes and muscle of the ruling party.
7: Now, talking about these young people who have been recruited to this government-funded crime preventers organization, Uganda has a significant youth population, with apparently 77% of the citizens there being under the age of 30. High levels of unemployment and poverty among young people is regularly reported as well. Do you think these issues could fuel the risk of conflict, that, because they are young and in this situation that they are easily manipulated into violence?
9: Well, I'm not so sure if it's easily manipulated into violence. I think it's it's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, people who are unemployed need jobs in all countries. And I think there's been this sort of sense that if crime preventers performed loyally, that they may get a job in the future, that they might be recruited into the police. So, you know, the financial incentive has been held out in front of them. Meanwhile, their actual mandate and what they're supposed to do is not clear at all. And so obviously in that setting people tend to have committed, in some cases, excesses, and it's not true in every single case, but it's not a system that's, that's set up to succeed. I think the other thing is, you know, President Museveni talks a great deal about, you know, what he's accomplished over the last 30 years and how he, you know, has delivered, obviously so much more than his predecessors, particularly Idi Amin, but for many young people, they've never known another president. And when they see that they don't have access to good health care or they struggle with their education and they can't find jobs, there's very high levels of unemployment. I think that, you know, they are not nearly as convinced of his you know, governance approach maybe than some of the older people who lived through more violence in their
7: youth. Now, Human Rights Watch says it has documented human rights abuses in Uganda since 1997 and that it also provides links to all of the research on the electoral environment in Uganda during campaigns on election day or in the crucial period afterwards over the last 20 years. Now, what in all this time does this say about the human rights situation in Uganda? Has it escalated um, over the years or has it become less? What is the situation now after 20 years of human rights recording all this?
9: Well, I think it's hard to say whether things are going up or down as far as numbers of human rights abuses, but I think our concern is that a lot of early signs that we documented in a 1999 report called Hostile to Democracy about the ruling party and, you know, at the time in the late 1990s, there was no opposition parties permitted in Uganda. And that report looks at a lot of threats to free expression and free association and sort of democratic space. And a lot of those threads of those concerns have continued. And you know, eventually there has been uh, multi-party politics in Uganda, though it only opened up in 2005. And I think the impact of you know 20 years of a ruling party, a single ruling party, doesn't go away overnight. So, you know, as far as human rights concerns are, we remain very concerned. We have a lot of concerns, for example, about impunity. You know, we continue to document torture and, and extrajudicial executions that aren't ultimately investigated and no one is held accountable. So it's a difficult time, and that's not to say that Uganda hasn't had economic success in the last 20 years. Clearly things have, have improved from the days of Idi Amin. I think the question is whether or not human rights are still protected, and whether Ugandans are satisfied with our government, and that will be on Thursday.
1: Maria Bennett, Senior research in the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, on the line from Washington, speaking to
10: Jose Houdinake. Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary, Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at P.O. box 913103 Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus 27823325905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Africa Rise and Shine Africa Zorba Africa Amuka Na
1: It's 8.17 Central African Time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa. Now the mental state of Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe has been questioned after attacks on Vice President Emerson Mnangangwa. Former ZANU-PF member Temba Mliswa says Grace Mugabe's careless statements against fellow party leaders, especially the Presidium, has brought the country to its knees. Simon Muchema has more from Harare.
11: Zimbabwe's First Lady Grace Mugabe has been alleged to be insane and led the country astray with her careless statements during the attacks of Mugabe's deputies. For the first time in the history of the country, President Mugabe fired his vice president, Joyce Mujuru, and a number of ministers in 2014. This followed some utterances by his wife, Grace, that Mujuru and her alleged cabal were plotting to kill the aged leader. Without seeking any form of evidence or causing any arrest, Robert Mugabe followed the dictates of his wife. A year later, Mujuru successor Emerson Munangagwa is facing the same allegations in what experts say is a plot to make sure Mugabe's plan of life presidency succeeds. Meanwhile, former ZANU-PF legislator Temba Mliswa has attacked Grace Mugabe and questioned her sanity. As
12: long as the first lady does not make her reports official in the first incidents of Mayim during Kabao, in, 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 in the recent one of Vice President Nangagwa, then brings to question her mental state. Very clearly, her mental state. Is that the behavior of a normal person? You see, we are now worried about the mental state of the First Lady of Zimbabwe. This is a serious issue. It's not a laughable issue. <coughs> and her mental state has resulted In the economy the economy being brought to its knees the country is on its knees the decisions that she's making have impacted negatively on the reputation of Zimbabweans as a people Mliswa
11: aided Grace Mugabe has overstepped a boundary
12: and I'm sure you're aware that uh, the vice president's office is that of government (coughs) it's not of ZANU-PF and I think when he takes that office, he has to conduct in the duties best for the country, not for the party. Firstly, the question, uh, the capacity, firstly the question that the capacity, whether she has the capacity in making statements, uh, is, is it uh, from a ZANU-PF point of view or is it from a government point of view? I think uh, the first lady has, has, has more or less overstepped her boundaries. That's pretty clear. And in overstepping her boundaries, there's no one who can restrain her. The attacks have been constant. We saw the attack on the former vice president, uh, Maimu Juru, in the same manner.
11: It's
12: pretty clear that the president is not in control of the first lady. Culturally, women must submit to their husbands. But... This is a unique situation where we believe it is the husband submitting to the wife. And I think it's important that even the cultural aspect of Zimbabwe is not being respected. The father shall love his wife and family, and the wife shall submit and humble herself. And this is not the situation. I had an interview some time ago where I clearly stated in this room (coughs) that the gay gangsters had taken over. I've come back again to say, was I not correct? And I named Kasukwere, I named Jonathan Moyo, I named Jua. Jo-
11: Meanwhile, Moliswa has challenged the first family to take national issues seriously, considering that the country's economy is crumbling. Meliswa said the ruling party would be history and destroyed from within by the time the country gets to the next elections in 2018.
12: I want to say that Zanupia has certainly gone the way of Kanu. There's no tutors about it. That's what has happened and so forth. So I think I mentioned about the, 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 the progressive movement, but failure... To Shanghai uniting with team, there they should be an alternative, right? Zimbabweans must prepare themselves for an alternative. Because if they don't unite equally, they also uh, you know, have to respond to a number of issues from the electorate point of view. But unity would then put them in, in, in a better position. So an alternative has got to come, and I think YAD will be
1: ensuring it to do that.
11: Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa.
1: Zimbabwe's police say they are still assessing the matter of a dead body found in a compartment on a South Africa-bound cargo plane. The U.S.-based private plane was en route from Germany to South Africa when a technical fault forced it to land in Zimbabwe. Blood was seen coming from a crevice on the side of the plane and the body of a man was found. The plane was hired by the South African Reserve Bank to carry newly printed notes from Munich to Durban. The plane's crew and two South Africa Reserve Bank officials who accompanied the consignment are assisting with investigations, Yoka reports.
4: South Africa's ambassador to Zimbabwe says the Western Global Airlines plane was carrying RAND notes printed in Munich, Germany, when it made the emergency stop in Harare. During refueling, blood was discovered in a crevice on the side of the plane. A man's bloodied and blistered body was retrieved. Ambassador Vusima Vimbella.
5: This is an international aircraft, private company, that had been hired by the South African Reserve Bank, not for the first time to transport cargo out of Munich into South Africa.
4: The ambassador said the plane had arrived in Munich from Entebbe, Uganda. A new crew, including two Reserve Bank officials, boarded the plane in Munich.
5: So the crew that was there, as well as the two members of the South African Reserve Bank, didn't know where the aircraft had been who had flown the aircraft. The pilots
4: noticed blood coming from a crevice, but assumed it was that of a bird. Zimbabwe is holding onto the plane as well as the South Africa Reserve Bank consignment until investigations are complete.
5: Our primary objective right now is that the cargo needs to be released because clearly the cargo, the South African Reserve Bank, has produced all the documentation to say it's their cargo, it's authentic we even have documentation, documentation out of Munich to say this is the property of the South African Reserve Bank because the body was found outside, not inside, where the cargo is.
4: The South African Reserve Bank is speculating that the man who is yet to be identified was a stowaway. i in Harare.
1: A leading human rights expert has added his voice to calls for the United Kingdom and Sweden to respect the findings of the United Nations Committee on Whistleblower Julian Assange. Alfred de Zayas, an independent expert appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, says the two countries should accept a recent majority vote by the UN Working Group on arbitrary detention, which ruled that Mr. Assange's case contravened international covenants. De Zayas says a failure to heed the UN ruling would be nothing short of an à la carte approach to human rights.
8: In the light of the negative press that I have read, I think it is important to emphasize that the work of the Human Rights Council is not just pro forma. I mean, we have devoted a considerable amount of time to investigate any number of cases of alleged human rights violations and you may or may not agree with the conclusions of the experts but the experts have spoken. just wonder is it slightly diminished that it wasn't a unanimous decision by the working group? Well it is correct that the Australian recused himself and as far as the member who wrote his dissenting opinion I think that even gives greater weight to the other opinion because you see that they are truly independent. You have here one who, because of his nationality, decides he should not speak on the issue, the other one who is honestly of the opinion that they had no jurisdiction, and three who are real top legal experts who decided that there were violations. Now, this committee has been functioning now for... 40 years, has issued considerable jurisprudence, and it cannot just be for the waste paper basket. I mean, it means something. So can I just return to the case in, in point
10: now? So on the Assange point, I, I, I see very well that that you in your statement you speak out against this so-called a la carte approach to human rights, but what exactly are you hoping will be the next step for Assange?
8: I think on the... Uh, outstanding issues in Sweden. The outstanding case against him, you mean? That's right. That this decision by the working group will encourage the authorities to do what they have to do to settle the issue. Once the issue is settled, I would like to see that this man does not stay indefinitely in the embassy of Ecuador. I mean, there are many Options that both UK and Sweden have in order to accommodate the findings of the working group. And this kind of blockage is unworthy of the system of human rights protection that we all have built together.
1: That was Alfred Dezal speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson.
0: This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave internet and satellite.
11: My name is Sipahot Stix Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
10: Pambi.
4: My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa,
0: the voice of the African Renaissance.
7: My My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Africa, rise and shine.
6: Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, réveille-toi. Africa, Africa, women. Sun, rise. sun rises. Le soleil est levé. We ya What's in the
5: happen Africa?
12: Africa,
6: dumelang, Bonani. Africa mulishani, Africa, you mean
5: Africa kim What's in the happen Africa?
6: It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from, we are one people, Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria.
0: Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
1: It's 8.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
2: A very good morning to you in the headlines. Rwanda's confirmed it will not close its borders or forcibly expel Burundian refugees on its territory. An unmanned aerial vehicle operated by the US military has crashed in southern Somalia near the country's border with Kenya. And Zimbabwe is still probing the matter of a dead body found in a compartment on a South African-bound US cargo plane. Those are the stories making headlines.
0: Africa rise and shine. Africa, Zulu. Africa, amka na unai.
1: Thank you, Anne. Although it is more than eight years since hundreds of women were brutally raped during post-election violence in Kenya, the harrowing events of 2007 and 2008 continue to affect survivors to this day. Destitute in ill health and often ostracized by their family and community, many recall the ordeal as if it happened yesterday. While the Kenyan government Compensated people who were displaced at the time, many survivors of sexual violence have neither been compensated nor seen justice. Agnes Odiambo, Senior Research in the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch, interviewed survivors countrywide for her new report and she spoke to Jose Hodingake.
13: Well, I have to say that uh, when actually I set out to go to interview these women, I knew that obviously rape is devastating to women, but I did not expect to find the level of brutality and pain that these women were experiencing. When I was interviewing them, they were relating the events as if they had just happened that morning. And these are events that happened eight years ago. The rapes were really brutal. Most of the rapes that we documented were gang rapes. Most of the women were raped by more than four men. In a number of cases as well, women were raped by more than 10 perpetrators Some of the women, they had bottles, guns, and sticks inserted inside their vaginas. There was a lot of physical violence involved in the rape. Some of the women said they were beaten with uh, heavy objects and passed out. And then when they woke up, they found they had been raped. So could not tell how many people had raped them. Others were saying that they passed out during the assault. So a woman would say, I remember four men raping me and then I passed out. So she doesn't even know how many to rape them. Women were cut with machetes, they were thrown on hard surfaces, they had their legs tied and pulled apart. So it was really brutal, you know, they raped women who had just given birth, women who were pregnant, the rapes were really, really, really brutal. Those are the kind of rapes that we documented. Now,
7: has anybody ever been held to account for these atrocities?
13: Well, according to a report that Human Rights Watch has seen from the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions, but which is not public. The origin of the report is that in, uh, I think, 2012 or 2013, the Director of Public Prosecutions formed a mass agency task force to look into all post-election violence cases, including sexual violence. Now, a draft report that Human Rights Watch has seen, which is not public, so I cannot say with the certainty that that is a final report, shows that there have been 23 convictions for sexual violence. Now, that is what the government saying in a report that's not public, so I really don't know whether that is the final figure. But I'm skeptical about those figures because when I analyze the report, it has a lot of inconsistencies, numbers don't add up, and the report is generally very difficult to follow. So I have concerns about the credibility and reliability of that uh, report. As well, in a previous report that Human Rights Watch put out called Turning Pebbles some um, three years back, We found that there were actually serious issues with the way government had done investigations and even with some of the claims it was making that it had prosecuted post-election violence cases. I remember in one case my colleague who did that report found that one of the cases where they were saying was post-election violence related was actually someone who had common knowledge of a goat. So since we have not reviewed those files to see that here are the files, these are the cases, this is how the proceedings went and the person has been convicted, I cannot say with certainty that for sure there have been any conviction for sexual violence.
7: Now, we know of cases in other countries like in the Democratic Republic of the Congo where rape victims would face stigmatization or are mm. shunned, you know, even by their own families. Do we have similar cases here?
13: Absolutely, so many of them. I mean, these women are devastated because it is bad enough to be raped and to be raped by 10 men, but these women have also been shunned by their families. Actually, it was in very few cases we found women who had found support in their families, especially from their husbands. Otherwise, for many women, when their husbands learned about the rapes, they abandoned them or they chased them. But even those women who are still living with their husbands and their husbands know about trade rape, Quite a number of them are facing physical and verbal abuse from their husbands, you know, they blame them for the rape, some of the women were infected with HIV, they blame them for the rape, some of the women got children, the husbands are abusing their wives and, and, and this. So the situation is really bad for the women and it's not just the immediate family who stigmatize these women, even within like their larger families and within the communities. I spoke to some women who say that they actually had to move from where they were living because they you know they were being stigmatized and they could not just deal with that they had to move and go and live somewhere else so yes there's a lot of stigma and generally there's a high stigma attached to sexual violence in in Kenya generally so you can imagine in situations of mass rape that uh, that stigma can only be more especially in cases where women have uh, been infected with HIV or they have gotten pregnant from the rape and then tell me what are the immediate needs of the victims The immediate needs of these women are one is medical. And if I can just go back very briefly, when we talk about these reparations, the government has to know that these women have pressing needs, and the longer it takes, the worse it gets. Women are sick. They have sexually transmitted infections. They have pains. They cannot work. They cannot go to work. They cannot go to the market. So they need to be treated, okay? A lot of these women are really, really going through psychological trauma. They need support, not only for these women, but also family members who have been affected. Many of these women are really destitute. They are sleeping hungry. The government needs to address that immediately. But the government also needs a long-term plan to address all the needs of these women. Some of the children who are born from rape are being denied birth certificates by government officials because their fathers are not known. That is an issue that government needs to address immediately. That
1: was Agnes Odiambo, senior Africa women's rights researcher at Human Rights Watch on the line from Nairobi in Kenya, speaking to José Khodingake. It's eight thirty-seven Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Racism cannot be eradicated in South Africa while black people continue to speak alone about the issue. That's the view, expressed at a discussion on racism in Durban last night, which was largely attended by black people. South Africa's ruling ANC in Guazum-Natal province hosted the dialogue on racism at the University of Guazum-Natal's Howard campus in Durban. Zanela Butelezi has more.
2: Last Saturday, it's the under-10A A team... The first five white boys in the batting order all fall for three wickets. The eighth boy in the batting order is called Tabiso. He's last. He holds off the opponents for 25 more overs, single-handed. So the question is, why was he not at the top of the batting order? So, you know, from being in South Africa,
14: I I also see race playing out um, daily. British Professor Sarah Brecking gives her personal observation of the issue of race in South Africa. After having been in the country for three years now, Professor Brecking is the chair of the South African Research Council in Applied Poverty Reduction Assessment at the UKZN. She was a panelist in a dialogue on racism. Speaking at the gathering, Arts and Culture Minister Natim Teretor says the recent racist incidents on social media are a rude reminder that racism continues to be a dominant feature in the South African society.
5: We have to, at all times, show intolerance with racism. It's something which, when you give it just a little opportunity, it destroys you. So, what we did to apartheid, we must do it now. We must mobilize our people in all social stations of our society, take it to the street, and say no to racism.
14: Political commentator Dr. Peggy Mgomezulu raised a question as to what extent did the reconciliatory spirits that prevailed in the early 1990s contribute to the racist remarks that are being seen today.
12: There is a view that. Uh, in the interest of building a country under reconciliation, we then in the process ignored a number of issues we're supposed to tackle, we put them under the carpet, and then we have people like sparrow who are reminding us that by the way, we are still divided and we are still ranked in that hierarchy.
14: Also on the panel was Dr. Rama Naidu. The executive director of the Democracy Development Programme. He says without acknowledging what the system has done to South Africans, the country cannot move forward.
5: And I think it's an acknowledgement that we can start to engage. The first thing is to acknowledge. But when we don't see it,
6: when we trivialize it, it becomes a bone of contention. It becomes an air of arrogance. It becomes a question of these people. So you make the people the other and then I can disengage from you. So now these ungrateful people can't do anything, we have to do all this work, it's all our money. But we're not having the honest conversations, but what the whiteness
14: meant. The discussion did stir up emotions in the audience. If I look around this
2: room, there's predominantly black people. So how are we going to move forward if we keep talking to ourselves?
6: But if we still don't have our land, there's nothing we can talk about. Give us back our land, then we can start having a conversation.
4: There must be a harsher way of
12: addressing issues of racism. The truth is we are dealing with the majority and the minority, and the minority, because has money, is holding everyone at ransom in the space of racism.
14: Mteto says it's a responsibility of everyone, including political parties and government, to help overcome the issue of black inferiority.
5: I don't think we should be, again, pity to ourselves. Government must do something because people feel inferior. It's the job of all of us. If our sisters today get into the bath and bleach their whole body so that they are white or they seem to be white, will that be a problem of government? Really?
14: There was a call for a concerted effort to educate South Africans in order to free them from the shackles of racism. Zaneli Butelezi, S.A.B.C. News, Durban.
1: Now let's go back in time to today in 1977. Janani Luam, the Anglican Archbishop of Uganda, and two other men were killed in what Ugandan authorities said was an Automobile accident that was today in history in the year 1977.
0: Africa rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka, Na
1: Now, at least one person was killed and several injured in clashes between police and supporters of opposition leader Kiza Besige in Kampala just days ahead of Uganda's presidential election. Now it's the worst outbreak of violence to hit the capital city during the campaign season ahead of Thursday's vote which is the 18th of February. Opponents say they are fed up with veteran leader Yoweri Museveni's 30-year rule and see the election as yet another extension of power. He's also been accused of failing to curtail rampant corruption and using intimidation tactics which have included arresting opposition supporters and shutting down what government says are illegal rallies. An election poll says Museveni is expected to beat his opponents, though analysts say they see this election as being his toughest political challenge to date. Our question to you today is Do you think conditions in Uganda are suitable for free and fair elections? Give us your views and your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero, or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa or at Channel Africa One. Do you think? Conditions in Uganda are suitable for free and fair elections. Channel Africa, the voice of the African
6: Renaissance. Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time.
0: Africa Rise and Shine. Africa Zola. Africa Amuka Na
10: Hello, listener. Join Channel Africa in celebrating its 50th anniversary. Channel Africa is turning 50 in May this year. Join us as we move through memories of this station since 1966. Send us your contact number to include your memories in our celebrations. Email your contact to info at channelafrica.org or write to us at Channel Africa PO Box 913103, Auckland Park, Johannesburg 2006. You can also SMS to plus two seven eight two double three two five nine zero five. 2782-332-5905. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
0: Africa, rise and shine.
6: Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille toi. Africa, Africa, women, sun rising. Le soleil est levé. Oui, ya What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani Africa, Muli Shadi, Africa, i yomi not
12: Africa,
5: I'm not going to
6: What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria. Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo,
1: Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC Our economics update is up next with Tabisolo Hoku
10: Thanks, Balungile. Rescue operations remain suspended at the Lili Gold Mine near Babaton in South Africa's Mpumalanga province. Three mine staff members have been trapped for 11 days after the container they were working in fell into a sinkhole. The rescue mission was halted over the weekend after rock falls, which fell into a shaft, making it difficult for the rescue teams to continue with the search. Mutsibuwa Monaring reports.
12: The mine management is still hoping that in the next 48 hours, it might come up with new ideas that can assist them in resuming their rescue mission.
5: Lily Gold mine CEO Mike McKenzie. The situation is that because we cannot get underground to assess the safety involved in getting underground, we aren't able to make a comment on when and how we are going to go forward. Rescue operation remains suspended pending the geotechnical assessment whether it will be safe
12: to return underground.
10: The appeal case of more than nine, well, rather 100, dismissed workers of extratermine Mine in Rustenburg and South Africa's Northwest Province is being heard on Tuesday in the Labour Court in Johannesburg. This is an attempt to have the 2013 Labour Court ruling against them overturned. The workers were allegedly laid off by the mine in 2009 for refusing to undergo HIV tests which the mine ordered them to take. At the time, mine management allegedly misled the court claiming the workers were sacked for taking part in an illegal stoppage. The workers' lawyer, Simi Murwani. We do have a very
11: strong case. Because it is our view, the legal principles were not applied. One, these people did not want to attend the wellness program because they wanted clarity. As in the previous years, testing was voluntary. So this time, they said for them to attend, that would mean HIV testing would be compulsory. So while they were waiting for the their manager to explain, to find clarity... He
12: only told them that if they don't attend, you will dismiss them. And
10: that's what has happened. Mozambican Central Bank has lifted its benchmark lending rate by a 100 basis points. The bank says a deteriorating growth, rising inflation and the effect of the worst drought to hit southern Africa in decades had influenced its decision to raise its benchmark lending rate. Oil prices have surged to the highest in more than a week. U.S. crude is up 1.43 U.S. dollars. The world's top oil exporter is Saudi Arabia. Russia will hold talks together with their counterparts from Venezuela and Qatar in Doha. The US dollar trades at 15.79 to the South African Rand, 11.13 one three Wutzona Pula, eleven in Zambia, six nine British pound, eight nine euro, gold one thousand, one nine three dollars, platinum nine two two dollars an ounce, brand crude oil three four dollars, six eight cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update. My name is Tabiso Lahoko.
1: Thank you, Tavi. So our sports update up next with Tommy Pooza.
6: Thanks for joining us once again. Football Association of Zambia Fars President Kalusha Buala has paid tribute to coach Fritton Simukonda, who died on Monday morning. Jangarensa's coach Simukonda had died at the age of 58. Janga team manager Patrick Ngata says that Simukonda died on Monday morning at the Ngongola Mine Hospital in Chililabombwe after an illness. Simukonda was last December admitted to Janga Mine Hospital in Chingola because of diabetes. Simukonda led Zambia to, a winning, the, to winning the 1998 Kosafa Cup as interim Chipolo Polo. He coached Zesco United, Sanaco, City of Lusaka, Lusaka Dynamos. Kongola Blades, Rowan United, and Kampala Leopards, among others. He was named Zambian Coach of the Year in 2005, 2006, and 2010. He won several cups as coach, that includes the Buckley's Cup twice and the BP Top 8. In West Africa, the scorer of Nigeria's first ever goal at the Africa Cup of Nations, Asiko Edbe, has passed on. Popularly known as Ekpe Senior in his playing days, he achieved the record when Nigeria lost 6-3 to Egypt in Kumasi in Ghana in 1963. Ekpe was one of Nigeria's finest in the 50s and 60s and played for various clubs which include R- Railway Lagos 2, Welsh 15 Secretariat FC and Western Rovers. He debuted for Nigeria in an international friendly with Togo in 1956 and played his last game for Nigeria in a 1-1 draw with Dahomey which is now being in an All Africa Games qualifier. Ekpe played 28 matches for the national team. He will be laid to rest in Uwana near Afikpo in Ebonya State on the 9th of April. Host India will play West Indies and South Africa in their two warm-up matches in the run-up to the ICC World T20 to be staged at the eight venues starting next month. While India will play West Indies in the historic Eden Gardens in Kolkata on March the 10th, the host last practice match against the Proteas will be hosted by Mumbai's Wankeda Stadium on the 12th of March. The teams taking part in the first round will play their warm-up matches in Dharamsala as well as Mohali from March the 3rd until the 6th while featuring in the second round, will play their practice game in Kolkata and Mumbai from the 10th until the 15th. Cricket South Africa's chief executive, Harold Lockhart, Commended the Proteas' 18-man squad to do battle at the 2016 World T20 Cup tournament in India next month. Cricket South Africa last week announced a strong squad for the tournament, with a notable omission that of first bowler Monimookel, despite the inclusion of injured Del Steyn. says that with the world-class players the Proteas have on their side, they stand a great chance of comp- competing well and coming out victorious with the World T20 title.
11: I do really believe that the squad is a very, very good one. There are world-class players in there, as we all know. Uh, There are some really talented individuals. There are three new caps in there. So there's loads of experience with the three new caps. I think it's a good combination that we've got. There's a combination that can get selected for the final 11 uh, for almost any condition that we might face in India. So good luck to the boys.
6: And finally, in rugby, the South African rugby team, the Blix Poké, have received a timely boost with news that regular skipper Kyle Brown, Branko Duprea and Cecil Africa have recovered from injury and have resumed full training. Brown with minor operation, Frank Branko Duprea with a shoulder surgery and Cecil Africa with a hamstring injury have completed full rehabilitation programs and will now be available for selection for fifth leg of the HSBC 7 World Series, which takes place in Lagos from the 4th until the 6th of March. That's the end of our sport, and back to Lulu, Gabu.
0: Africa, rise and shine. Africa, forza. Africa
1: amika Na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. Rwanda pledges not forcibly to repatriate Burundian refugees Ugandans prepare to vote in presidential elections and Zimbabwe's first lady Grace Mugabe's mental state questioned That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today for myself Mugabe Producers and technical producers Shekho, and the rest of the team thank you for joining us for comments about our show, send us an email at info at dot or tweet us at RiseShineAfrica. Now taking us to the top of our for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-metre band to southern Africa is Malay with a song titled Chim Soro.